All right. Well, if you guys would turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. One of the most famous passages of the Bible. And we find ourselves in here where Paul is writing to Timothy really amidst difficult times. So if you would follow along in verse 14. It reads this. You, however... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Not too many years ago, I had the opportunity to work with a mission organization, and I was the new man on the team. So I had to do a little bit of investigation to understand what I was working with, if this was a partner we wanted to stay with, if they were going in the right direction, if they were in a wrong situation, then were they correctable? As I found out more about the missionary agency, I had to reach out to another church in the area that really became the main organization that was uh, overseeing this agency in South Africa. That church was becoming the one who was influencing this agency. So I reached out to the leader of this agency, an elder at that church, a lady. This church was 15,000 people. It had congregations all over the state, and this church had been compromising in its biblical convictions. Wanting to presume grace within the church and the ministry, I sought, hey, let me call them and reach out for a lunch meeting that we could discuss the direction and possibly work with them to resolve this and help the ministry in South Africa. So I called and I did some research ahead of time and I came into the meeting aware that the church had been having a priest regularly preach at the church services for about 10 years. I had understood that in 1990 they made a cognitive decision to start employing people from Fuller Theological Seminary. So I had to now go and study about Fuller Theological Seminary. <laughs> well, Charles Fuller, a great man in the Lord, was an academic professor of elitism. He was conservative, but his son went to Europe for education. His son, Daniel Fuller, went to England to study, or sorry, went to Europe to study. And in that time, he became convinced that hermeneutics was not only important, but it was important as much as it didn't lead to certain convictions in Scripture. He would not say that he follows a grammatical historical hermeneutic. However, he follows a hermeneutic that distrusts lots of the inerrancy of Scripture. So as we can tell from the early 20th century with Charles Fuller and then his son leading into Daniel Fuller, Fuller Theological Seminary became a little washed down. And de facto, so did that church that was bringing in students from that seminary. The church no longer adhered to biblical inerrancy in the same way that we would adhere to it from the Chicago inerrancy statement. The church no longer adhered to sola scriptura, to sola fide, sola gratia, and sola... Um, the other solos, five of them. I can't think of right. <laughs> I just taught the class last year. Uh, anyways, humble thyself, right? <laughs> um, one of those times you don't put the notes in your, in your notes and then you keep going. Anyways. So anyways, what happened was they weren't building their biblical convictions. They were watering them down. They were becoming inflated with numbers but deflated with doctrine and theology. So the people they were starting to do ministry with was compromising. They had brought women elders in. They had no longer adhered to lordship salvation. They wanted to be antinomian. They even put a slip and slide into the church from the children's program down to the worship center. They took the crosses out. This is a story as old as time, isn't it, ladies and gentlemen? And the problem with the story is, is that in the Bible, we understand that we're to expect this story to come. In fact, the difficult times that come for you and I are not from the outside as much as they are from the inside. 
Needless to say, we dropped that ministry. But this is bigger than the inflation in 2008, the inflation in the 1990s, the inflation in the Great Depression. This inflation doesn't have Dodd-Frank or Sarbanes-Oxley to bail us out. This inflation has the sufficiency of Scripture to keep us on the right path. So how do we understand, how do we know the times, how do we understand the difficult times that we're in so that we don't become inflated with numbers but deflated with doctrine? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 gives us the exact answer that we need to have. And it's Paul's really last words to Timothy. It's Paul talking to Timothy in a way that, hey, I'm going on. I'm about to die, but you'll be here for another 30 years. Timothy does not know that yet. But what could I say in my last parting words to you? What could you do? Well, you could do this, Timothy, and this is the point of our message today. You could continue in your convictions so that your church will be sufficiently equipped. And that's what you and I can do at Santan Bible Church. We can continue within our biblical convictions so that we can be sufficiently equipped for the difficult times that we're in here today. First, if you look with me at verse 14, the first expectation of our continued convictions is we got to expect the battle. Look at verse 14, you, however, and we'll stop there. He tells us, contrasting to the previous 13 verses, that there is something that we are to be different from. There's something we're to be far, far from, and that is the continual pattern of the world to come into the church. But how does it come into the church? Well, look at the first 13 verses of chapter 3. It continually comes into the church through difficult times, chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. That's a future promise. Difficult times have been here from the beginning of Moses and all the way from Abraham and even to us today for Paul in that day. And they're people who are first seeking self-pleasure. Chapter uh, 3, verse 2 through 4 really tries to grasp at words to understand all that these people are after. And we can understand it this way. It's hedonism. It's the idea that they are seeking after self-pleasure for their meaning in life. He says in many words, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. When I spoke with that lady elder at this church to talk about our cooperation in the future, the possibility of it, I got into the conversation about the fact that I had issues with her leading a ministry as a woman elder. She immediately said, who's to say that you know you're right? And I said, I don't claim to know anything other than what scripture says. And I quoted off several Bible verses with some grammatical input here and there. She was not happy. She said, well, I don't know hermeneutics. Guys, remember, she's an elder. But I know that the elders wouldn't have put me in this position unless God had told them. See, when we're dealing with people that are coming from an emotionalized standpoint, sometimes their presupposition of being well-intended isn't actually well at all. It's actually misconceived. It's actually ill. They're actually being evil. They're being ones who want to pleasure themselves rather than love God. And they also hold to a form of godliness. Look at this in verse 5 of chapter 3. They're Christian liberals. They hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They're saying, God has saved me. John 3.16. But then they don't go further beyond that to see that Jesus is the Lord of their life in application. They don't understand that the power of the cross is far beyond its death and resurrection, but into your fruitfulness and your living. And that we have to adhere to Scripture because it is our compass. It is the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. We have to know that this is what we're dealing with, that we've got to expect these people, not only those who are hedonistic or Christian liberals, but they're seeking pleasure for themselves. And it's an ill pleasure. Look at verse 6. They go into the households of weak women. This last week, 
not only inside the church but out of the church, we can be dealing with people who are not seeking the well-being of people in the church that are weak-souled or small-souled, says 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This last week I met a person on vacation and he admitted to me that he was on vacation having an affair. And I said, man, how many women are there? I felt like I was in the conversation with the woman at the well. The only difference is that he said there were six in his life. And he began to brag about it. And I said, well, you know, I'm a, little, I'm a lot different than you. <laughs> I, I aim to please one woman. And I aim to be a one-woman man. That's my goal in life. And he goes, well, man, I don't know how you do it. I say, I do it with, by the grace of God. We got into the gospel, and he said, man, my issue is that I'm just addicted to women. I said, that's not your issue. Your issue is that you love yourself more than anything else. He began to tell me how he was convicted about this, how the constant task of deleting text messages and keeping the ladies from not knowing each other was a difficult situation. I told him that there was power at the cross, and we shared the gospel, and he did not accept but I gave him my phone number and hopefully he'll reach out. But this is what the hedonism is of this world. They brag about it, yet they're empty on the inside. And how did I know that he was empty on the inside? Because with Crossroads, we've been going through Ecclesiastes. And the student ministry is going to be going through Ecclesiastes. And they understand that hundreds of women isn't the solution to pleasure. But that the catechism is the solution to pleasure. That our chief end in life is not to satisfy and glorify ourselves and enjoy our pleasure forever, but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This man was missing the mark. We have to understand that they're seeking pleasure. And then not only this, as the times go on in chapter 3, we understand that we expect the battle because it intensifies. Look at this at verse 10 and 11. We have an example during the, per, during the persecution. We have an example as it intensifies. Our example is near and also far. It's the nearness of Scripture. It's also the farness of Scripture. We're not with Timothy or Paul, but we can follow them because of what they're written down. But near to you is the examples you have in the local church. So many wonderful examples. That was one of the reasons why Ana Luisa and I came to this church. We have so many examples here at this church, and we're thankful for that. Coming up on a year here at Santan Bible Church, we've seen that to be more and more true. And they had an example themselves in chapter 3, verse 10. But you followed my teaching and conduct. They followed not only his doctrine, but his application. And that's a beautiful thing to see somebody not only be a good teacher, but be a good liver. And the problem with a lot of people with bad doctrine is that they use their godliness to show that their doctrine is correct. We should be looking at the other way around, that orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. That your right doctrine lives out before or leads into your right living. It says this, his purpose, his faith, his patience, his love, his perseverance, persecutions and sufferings. He couples those words together and when that's done in the Greek, it's an intensifying factor. Meaning they're coming at a rumbling rate. It's an earthquake of suffering. Persecutions and suffering. But it says this in verse 12, and this ends our point of expecting the battle. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. He promises that difficult times will come in verse 1. He promises that we will be persecuted in verse 12. And we need to expect the battle. That's what reaches this text, not just from Paul to Timothy, but from Timothy to us. As we expect to live within this battle, we understand that the battle comes quickly. I was just in Albania, and it was a wonderful time. To understand the church context there, in 1991, the Soviet Union disrupted, the Iron Curtain lifted, and all of these countries were now open to missionaries. And just 30 years later, they're like the church here that Paul writes to. They're less than 30 years old, needing doctrinal convictions, needing from the top down people who know the word, who are not going to compromise, who are not going to hire people from compromised seminaries or compromise convictions in the pulpit, but they're going to continue on. And the battle comes quickly right here in 66 AD. This is written, and just less than a little over 30 years after Jesus left this earth, there was battles from the outside and battles from the inside that Paul and Timothy were dealing with. The battle comes quickly. It comes repetitively. But you and I need to be aware of the philosophies that we battle against. 
Norman Geisler was battling the Evangelical Theological Society, a society that was incredible for many years. It's still really good in a lot of its journal articles, but they had a battle for inerrancy. They were starting to bring people into the leadership that had different views of inerrancy, different definitions. And Norman Geisler, the president of it at the time, had to step down because he no longer agreed with the direction they were going with, with their definition of inerrancy. He wrote an article that said, Beware of Philosophy. It's an incredible article. You can find it online or I can send it to you. He had five things we need to be aware of as he treats this situation that happened that slowly compromised with liberal Christianity. He said, Avoid the desire to become a famous scholar and unique. He said, Don't trade orthodoxy for academic respect. He said, Reject any methodology or philosophy that's inconsistent with biblical philosophy. He said, sincerity isn't orthodoxy. Maybe some people come to mind or maybe your own disobedience has come to mind at times where you felt you were being sincere, but really you weren't pursuing what God has in mind. And choose lordship over scholarship. We have to understand that that's our aim here, that we've got to not fall into the practice of you know, the philosophy of the times, whether it's proto-Gnosticism in Paul's time or you know, Stoicism in the Gospel of John, or whether it's New Age philosophies today, or anything that we're dealing with in a postmodern world, we expect the battle and we continue on to fight in our convictions. One last point here, to drill it into home, so that we understand this is real in our modern day context, is the illustration of Bruce Metzger. Bruce Metzger was a famous theologian from Princeton Theological Seminary. He was a New Testament scholar, a Greek scholar, incredible man. He wrote a book called The Canon of the New Testament. I have a copy of it. It's an incredible book. You should read it sometime. It's how we got the canon, how we got the standard, how we got the 66 books of the Bible. He was a world-renowned theologian. But several years after he wrote that, he also wrote the first edition of a book titled The Text of the New Testament. It was a look at the text and some of the discrepancies between the original manuscripts, the manuscripts we don't have anymore, but also the early manuscripts and later manuscripts, and trying to faithfully deal with them so we understand how the Bible is sufficient. So it's good textual criticism. Ten years later came a PhD student that he continued to work with by the name of Bart Erdman. Bart Erdman was an incredible scholar. He knows the languages very well. He's an incredible scholar, incredible writer, and, Bar and Bruce Metzger wanted to groom him. And in 2005, Bruce Metzger let him co-publish his fourth edition of the text of the New Testament. But the sad thing is at that time that Bart Erdman at that same year published a book called Misquoting Jesus. From the time of his years in Princeton to the time of 2005, he had compromised biblical convictions. He no longer believed in the Bible. He no longer had faith, and he now uses a ministry to dissuade people of the inerrancy of Scripture. He is known all over the world. He's the religious professor of University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is on the History Channel. He is in Amazon Prime documentaries, and he asserts that you cannot trust the literal historical person of Jesus Christ. These are people from within. But we've got to beware of the philosophy, we've got to beware of the battle, and you and I need to be aware just as well so that we can continue on in our convictions. Well, we know that we're to expect the battle as we continue our convictions in verse chapter, um, in chapter 3, verse 14, the second part of verse 14. We understand that we're to continue our convictions through biblical convictions. Look with me again at verse 14 as we read, you, however... Continue in the things you have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of them. This word convinced is the same word that the Apostle John loves in 1 John. It's the word in Greek that means remain. To continue a certain state or condition of life or activity. In fact, the Apostle John used this so much Paul loved it as well. He's borrowing from him, but John used 58% of it in the New Testament. 40 of those occurrences in the Gospel of John, 24 in 1 John. And Paul uses one occurrence here as well 
in 2 Timothy chapter 3 for us to understand that remaining brings assurance. If you remain in your convictions, that's sure assuring you that you are right in your convictions. But if you leave, just like those five men we read in the passages in our scripture reading, that they cannot have assurance of salvation. Remaining is indicative of the assurance of the cross that you have believed in. Remaining is a sign that salvation is continuing on in your life. 1 John 2, 24 through 27 says, Let that which you heard from the beginning remain in you. That which you heard from the beginning does not remain in you. If that which you have heard from the beginning does not remain in you, then you will remain in both the Son and the Father. This he has promised eternal life. I wrote these things to you about those who are misleading you. We got to understand that the world is misleading us and sometimes it's the church environment. Sometimes it's Christian liberality. Sometimes it's the hedonism that stepped into the church. Sometimes it's those who are seeking self-pleasure in the church. But we cannot continue on in being persuaded by that. Instead, we've got to continue on in what we have learned. We have to continue on in biblical convictions. He says here, the things. It's an indirect object. It's pointing to the things which he had learned from the beginning. The things which he had learned from the beginning. He's saying the things that were brought to you that were true in practice and in doctrine. What did Timothy learn? Well, chapter 3, verse 10 through 11 tells us that Timothy learned a lot about doctrine and a lot about living. Timothy learned that from Paul. Timothy learned a lot about doctrine and a lot about giving. He learned that salvation is through the word of God. He learned that we can continue on living out as we grow in our understanding of Scripture. And he learned that in sound doctrine, we refute everything else. Just as my example for the lady wasn't trying to mean well and be nice and considerate in that conversation with that person that we were joined with in a ministry partnership, my conviction at that moment was Scripture and Scripture alone. And I didn't worry about the emotional (laughs) aftermath. I was nice, I was considerate, I offered to buy her lunch later on, but my scripture conviction stood still. And we need to understand it stands still because it is rooted in what we're convinced of and we need to be convinced of what later on in verse 14 it says, knowing from whom we have learned them. The convictions that we have are as important as the people who are teaching them to us. Do we get them from Fuller Theological Seminary? Do we get them from a person who knows the word? Are they binding to the truth or binding to the world? This word conviction here is the same word we get salvation from. Or sorry, not salvation, but belief. Pistuo. This is actually the word that is more translated pistu. It's to be convinced of. To be sure of it. To not just believe in it, but to know it without compromise. It's the idea that you're convinced because you have belief. That trustworthiness in the gospel and in the cross leads to trustworthiness and biblical convictions. It's something that we have to continue living on in all of places of Scripture. We're persuaded that it's sure, that it's truthful, that it's valid, that it's doctrinal. Even if we lose friendships. Even if we lose relationships, even if we lose the ability for financial support where so many ministries fall short is that they are not convinced of doctrine enough to dissuade compromised financial sponsors. We can't be that way. Instead, we trust that whatever the Lord gives, as long as we're biblically biblically convicted, that that will be enough to provide for the future ministry that we're going on. It's worth dying for. Paul writes this letter and not long after would die. Timothy lives this letter out and 30 years later in 96 AD dies. And you and I need to learn it, we need to teach it, we need to preach it, and we need to die for it because we're convicted from it. That's what we have to do. Our biblical convictions will never be traded in for temporary possessions, for fame, wealth, or power like in Matthew 4 that Jesus was tempted with. They won't be... Given in to imposters, they will continue on in the difficult times. 
Biblical convictions expect persecution for the purpose of maturing, just as James 1 tells us. We need to stand tall in our convictions because imposters are coming from the outside and from the inside. Conviction is how we pass the test. So we've got to ask ourselves, do I've got enough in me to be biblically convicted? Am I prepared ahead of time for the difficult times of pragmatism, of hedonism, of paganism, of Christian liberality, or of even the man who led me to faith, possibly, who went astray? Was that what I placed my faith in, or was my my belief in Jesus Christ, the light of salvation, leading into my pastu, my belief and conviction in doctrinal clarity, that salvation continues on? to sanctification. Well, we can do that through continuing every area of our lives. And we have examples of that in our church through our Bible Hour classes. If you want to know more about the Bible, go to Through the Bible, an excellent class that does a survey of all the books in the Bible. And our Christian Living class that has been going through a systematic theology. What do we understand about the end times? We have to continue our convictions and doctrine and all the Bible studies and fellowship groups that will be happening up in September and all the Bible studies for women in the morning on Wednesday and the evening on Wednesday, those are places to grow your convictions. And the student ministries and college ministries and biblical counseling will help you where you're not assured, be assured so that you can have convictions so that not only are the pastors and elders convicted, but the plumbers, the electricians, the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers, and the mothers are just as convicted from the top down as from the bottom up. We've got to be convicted, every person in the church. So we don't fall into the deflation of a hot air balloon like many churches in Big Eva. So we've got to apply this. But how? How do we apply biblical convictions and not grow puffed up, right? I mean, we want to grow in our doctrine. We want to grow in our practice. That's what they viewed in Paul's life. But how do we do that without growing to a puffed up point? Well, or an academic or a scholarly point. Well, we do that by learning this valuable lesson in the end of verse 14 through 15. It's that growing in your continual convictions keeps the gospel as the source of your wisdom. Look with me at verse 14, the end of it, through verse 15. You, however, continue in these things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from who you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The problem with the people that compromise is that they never believed in salvation in the first place. That they can't move on to pastue, to conviction, because they never had pastue, belief in Jesus Christ's power of his resurrection. We were just talking outside, and the understanding of biblical conviction is this, that if you believe Jesus raised from the grave, you can believe everything else. People struggle with proving the historical person of Christ. And there are massive 800-page books on this. But you don't need to go there. If you know the source of wisdom is the cross, as it says here in verse 14 through 15. Knowing from whom you have learned that from a childhood you have known the sacred writings. So one of the things we love about this church is that there's so many children that are continuing in the church that were trained here as a child, that continue on in college ministry, that continue on in the Lord and come back after college and want to come here. That's not normal, guys. And we love that about this church. We've got to continue that because you know that what you were given from the beginning continues on. Your convictions grow. They don't weaken just because some philosophy professor has a good argument, but it's not really rooted in the true source of wisdom. We got to know that every Christian needs to be given a sound source. And that sound source is the source of wisdom in the gospel. We understand that from a childhood, Timothy was taught this. He not only had the witness and the ability to look at Paul's life, but he had Lois, his grandmother. He had his mom, Eunice. We understand that there are many people in your life to continue the example of, but only continue it as long as their example is biblical. But they had biblical examples, and you and I have biblical examples as well. 
Timothy knew that. He knew that in chapter 1, verse 5, where it says this, For I am mindful, Paul says this of Timothy, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. Are those around you sure that what started in the home has continued in your life? has continued past the cross into your conviction to stay with the wisdom that refutes the world's wisdom. Remember Psalm 19 verse 7 is a beautiful psalm that we understand that the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimonies of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We understand that scripture alone gives you that wisdom rooted in the cross, rooted in the regenerative work of scripture that continues on in making even simple people smart. We got to battle this world. We got to battle it with the sacred writings, with scripture. Where are you going to for your answers? Is it business convictions or biblical convictions? Is it childhood convictions or biblical convictions? Is it convictions from social media or convictions from the word? The word of God is holy. He says here, sacred. It's enough to equip you for the battle. It's enough for you to continue in biblical convictions past all the imposters, wherever they present themselves internally or externally. And that faith in Christ that you have is the source of it all. So many people get sidetracked into academia and into continual efforts of growing their brain without growing their trust in the cross. Because if there's no faith in Christ alone, it'll prove that they didn't have convictions in the Bible alone. That's why these churches go from John 3.16 and faith to later on not even having biblical convictions at all. They'd be no different than places that other people gather that aren't churches. But we got to continue to understand that genuine salvation has knowledge. It has a continued intellectual ability, but there's trust in Christ. There's trust in Christ that leads to continual trust in the Bible, all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. We have to understand that you got to teach yourself to be biblically qualified in your convictions so that you can go against the very qualified philosophers of the world, just like Paul did in Acts 17. Are you ready to go against those who are qualified in the world because you're qualified in your biblical convictions that are rooted in the gospel. So we understand that we need to expect the battle. We need to continue our biblical convictions through learning doctrine and applying it in life and that it's rooted in the cross. And not only that, we need to understand that that continues so further into our lives. It continues by keeping us as an understanding that the sufficiency is in Scripture, not in any other means of knowledge. Now look with me at verse 16. All of this is building up to one question that you and I have to ask ourselves. Is Scripture sufficient for my life? I think one of the greatest doctrines that has grown in my life as a believer is the sufficiency of Scripture. I thought it was so unimportant when I first became a believer. I thought it was so small and narrow. But as I've grown in the Word of God, I have understood that the sufficiency of Scripture is a chasm so wide that it can be something you study for the rest of your life. The sufficiency of Scripture is everything. Because the sufficiency of Scripture equips you adequately. The sufficiency of Scripture is the way you apply the work of the cross in the Word of God. And so we need to take this seriously. The other thing we need to understand is that there is a movement out there in the world to deny the sufficiency of Scripture. It has many different names. It has many different buildings. It has many different institutions and certifications. But we need to understand that our job to be that person in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, to live godly, to be a man of God as Timothy pursued as a man of God, we need to apply the sufficiency of Scripture in our lives to be equipped adequately. 
So look at this scripture as if it is the first time your eyes have laid on it. As it is the first time you have understood the scripture is this important in your life. That as far down the chasm as you have gone, there's so much more to go. Because scripture has so much more to do for you in your life. The first thing he says here about this sufficiency of Scripture is that all Scripture is inspired by God. One of the most powerful statements in the entire Bible. All Scripture, comprehensively. This is why we are verbal plenary inspirationists, meaning this, we believe all of Scripture. It's not dictated, it's not partial, it's not natural, but it's inspired. That every jot and tittle was titled by the pen of man through the uniqueness of their personalities, but through the movement of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. That we understand that the uniqueness of the writers demonstrates their background, style, and context, which is why you and I need to go into all Scripture and understand the uniqueness of their situation and their background and context to know what God was communicating through the Spirit through His own breath on paper to you and I. So that it would be sufficient for us. That's exactly what inspired by God means. Theopneustos. It's literally the breath of God on the pages of scripture. It's as if God breathed on the glass in the shower and wrote down everything he wanted to tell you. It's there recorded for you and I every single piece of it. It's fully prepared to give you instructions to life and to godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3. Dr. Farnell, one of the leading inerrantists who has been battling these other philosophies, says this, God's word is a sanctifying force. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth, John 17, 17. Jesus affirmed the scripture cannot be broken. Martin Luther said this, God's word is my rock and my anchor. On it I rely and it remains for God he cannot, rely, uh, cannot lie. John Calvin said this, we owe to scripture the same reverence that we owe to God because it is God's proceeding of his voice. William Tyndale said this, I call God to record against the day we shall appear before our Lord Jesus that I never altered one syllable of his word. Do we revere scripture as much as those who have led our example before us? We have to understand that there is a battle against the inerrancy of Scripture, against the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's a battle that doesn't understand its importance to us as believers. We understand that that Scripture is profitable for us. Here's one of the first attributes of an inspired man, or inspired Scripture of a man who's pursuing that sufficiency in his life, that you see it as profitable in your own life, that it's sufficient and beneficial for your living, that you will continue to be taught by the word of God in every area of your life. That there is still benefit for you and for I in the word of God, even as we grow in our years of the Lord. That it's beneficial for our decision-making, it's beneficial for our thought process, it's beneficial for our ability to withstand from sin, it's beneficial for our choices in careers, it's beneficial for our homes, for our way of parenting, it's beneficial. Ana Luisa and I have been reading as we were trying to get prepared for parenting the book by Ted Tripp that we need to shepherd our child's heart. And in that book, it talks about all the programs that have came along the way to shepherd your child. But truly, we've gone away from the biblical patterns of shepherding. And the point is this, that scripture is fully sufficient for you to understand how to parent your children. And children, Scripture is fully sufficient, 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 <laughs> sufficient for you to know how to respect and honor your parents, even when you don't feel like it. And we need to understand that Scripture is profitable and beneficial for our lives, far more than any other article, book, or continual TED Talks that come out. This is written in the prose. That means... It's for us in a positive affirmation way. We understand that it's profitable for us. It is profitable for us for teaching. What does that mean? It's profitable for our convictions to continue to grow. Once again, look at verse 16 with me. All in Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching. 
Once again, we are reminded that the convictions go beyond the gospel, that doctrinal training continues in our lives, that in Acts 2, 40 through 47, we understood that they were to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. This word, didascale, is a word that means formal and informal instruction. The beautiful thing about being a part of a solid church is that you're given the opportunity to be a part of formal and informal instruction in so many of the ways that I previously mentioned that you continue to go to those in the seasons that life are difficult. Guess what? The difficult times are coming no matter your schedule. So our schedules need to be rooted with pursuing the sufficiency of Scripture first and then letting the rest unfold. We've got to guard our time, but we've got to guard our philosophies as well our biblical convictions, and we can do that in so many ways. We're providing classes here, how to study the Bible in the future, and so many classes that are being taught by even Raymond Jay with Greek. I mean, what an amazing opportunity you have to continue even in the basics of your studies. And with the retreats that are coming up for the ladies' ministry, how to continue to grow in understanding that Scripture will be sufficient in your life, even in anxiety. That education and instruction continue on in education in the world and far greater it should be in the church that we need to have continuing education of our biblical convictions. I can't think of a better way to sum this word up than the theological dictionary of the New Testament, how it sums it up. It says this, the word calls attention to two aspects. Being applied on the one side is the insight of the one who is being instructed, meaning there needs to be qualifications. And on the other hand, to the knowledge of the, of the person in the teaching. The teacher forms a bridge to the knowledge and ability of the pupil. The aim is the highest possible development of the talents of the pupil. The goal is that every single person in this church has the highest level of the sufficiency of Scripture that is profitable for them, the teaching in their life. We need to have such a high standard for what we're taught and such a high standard to continually to grow in the sufficiency of Scripture so that we can learn and be taught by the Word of God in every aspect of our lives. We're to be taught. That's profitable for us. We're also to be reproofed by Scripture. That's profitable for us. It's the idea that Scripture is where we go to for criticism. So that can assure you in one sense So many people criticize you, but it's unbiblical criticism, right? And unbiblical criticism, you shouldn't waste a second overthinking. But if the criticism is rooted in biblical truth, pay very clear attention to that so that it can be an adequate understanding of you to be able to reveal and expose areas that you need to be corrected in your life. One of the beautiful things about marriage is that you have a constant reminder of that that you have a constant accountability partner, that we understand in life that it is important to have a constant reproof in our lives because we puff ourselves up. That's our human nature. But Scripture constantly reproofs us. And if we're constantly in the Word, if we're constantly leading our families in the Word or whatever housing situation we find ourselves in, then we'll have constant reproof so that we don't continue down patterns of unrepentant sin. The sense of this is that Scripture censors our lives. It provides censorship for you and I. Censorship that the world doesn't even get on some of the most acclaimed television programs. But we can have censorship to lead from unchristian behavior and unfruitful behavior to fruitful Christian behavior because we invite reproof into our lives. Well, it's profitable for teaching, profitable for proof, profitable for correction. Now, he uses a little bit of a different word here. It's a little bit of a play on a word. It's the only time this word is actually used in the entire New Testament. It's the idea of new and improved thinking. We go out in the world and we meditate on the wrong thing quite a bit. We understand that our thinking sometimes becomes stained. But it needs to be new and improved. We need to repair our thinking to a stature that is far more like the sanctuary that God has intended for us to be in the presence of holiness. We need to understand that our new and improved thinking is just like the idea that the priests had in the Old Testament. When they came into the presence of the Lord, they had to be continually corrected. Because if they weren't, they were walking in to a holy place with stain. And when we come into the church, we need to think about that holy bride as we come in here. Are we corrected? Are we new and improved? Are we without stain as we walk in here? 
It's the idea that's used in Old Testament times of a document without error. Scripture provides here a sense of new and improved ways to replace mistakes with the standard of Scripture. Because the world is providing you a standard according to its own philosophies. But our standard is the standard of Scripture. So we continually grow in our ability to be taught by Scripture because it's beneficial for us, our ability to be reproved by Scripture, our ability to be corrected by Scripture, and our ability to be training in righteousness. Look with me at verse 16 again. We form proper biblical habits and behaviors in our lives. We need to be instructed to right living. So many people in the antinomian world, that is a word that means anti-law. Basically, it's the idea that they're so against the dues of the scripture because it's so far away from the grace of God. But we understand that the grace of God leads us to the behavior of God. That a man of God seeks to be training their righteousness. That righteousness is accumulation of all that you've learned. That you may grace abound even more because you want to cultivate a life from doctrinal training to doctrinal living. That's the problem with so many academics. As they grow away from the gospel to academia, they are not growing in righteousness. They're not training those behaviors. As much as we grow in the word, we've got to write on sticky notes how we're going to live out that word that day. How we're going to behave that way to our families and our wives and our children. How we continue to understand that scripture supplies enough to continue to be right in our behavior in a pagan world. That we need to be the most noble. We need to have a standard far above reproach all those around us. We have to think about what others are thinking about us. Do we look around us and see people who are training in righteousness, forming behaviors and patterns that are like Christ, culminating all the doctrinal training into a sense of right living in the mind and morals. We especially regard this in the raising of our children as well, as we understand that children are to be trained up in this righteousness, not in any secular way of thinking. So as Christians, as we wrap up those words that encompass the profitability of Scripture, we must avoid saying the Scripture is sufficient while running away from reproof or running away from correction or not actively training our righteousness. we got to fight our daily lives by building up the sufficiency of Scripture through these means so that, at the end of verse 17, it says this, the man of God, there's lots of men in the world, they're men according to the Nature Channel, or to the History Channel, or to the History Books, but they're not men of God. Men of God are adequate, says in verse 17. You're possessed by the character of God in a way that the influences on your life are adequate enough to flee from even the worst of sins. 1 Timothy 6.11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. You are adequate for every good work as a man of God. And that can mean woman and child as well. This is specifically talking to Timothy, but you and I set that as our standard as well. That you are adequate, meaning capable, proficient, qualified for God's good work. You are a qualified person to abstain from the difficult times, even inside the church. This word equipped gives us the idea of a house being furnished. As a wife prepares a baby's room or as a wife prepares the, the garden outside or as a family prepares an addition on the home with every single corner with the same precision as Gary and Robin in all of their areas of ministry, we prepare everything with the details so that we are fully furnished and equipped for not only the trials against difficult times, but the trials to the next difficult times. We understand that this is in the perfect passive tense, equipped. It's an interesting input that God breathed on Scripture here. That is to say this, that we have been equipped, that we are equipped, and that we will be equipped. That the sufficiency of the cross is not only active in its passive work, but it's active in its continual work with you and I. 
that you and I continue on the power of the cross through the power of our adequacy in living as a man and woman of God. We have to make something under, someone understand, or sorry, we have to make ourselves understand that we have to be completely qualified by the complete word of God because it is sufficient in our lives. I'll end with this. The testimony of Timothy's death is one that should ring true in our lives. One that the New Testament church time needs to hear again. Maybe it's one of us in this room. Maybe it's somebody that we'll hear about in the future in Canada as continual proclamations against the sufficiency of Scripture come. But the testimony of Timothy's death is this. It's one that believed in the sufficiency of Scripture to the end. That after hearing the words that Paul wrote to him here in 66 AD, that in 96 AD, after laboring in the ministry, he stood amidst a pagan culture, a hedonistic culture, that was having a continual demonstration of that paganism in the streets, that he could no longer live amidst this. He could no longer stay in the church. He had to go out to the public, out to the streets, and proclaim from the rooftops that this is enough. That he had to reprove the behavior as he saw even Christians behaving in these things. He had to rebuke the idolatry. And in that time, he was killed with clubs and attacked by this hedonistic mob left with sustaining wounds that would kill him two days later, but leaving all those around him saying this, that Timothy fought the good fight, that he finished strong, that he felt that proving the sufficiency of Scripture and living was far greater than falling to the philosophies of modern difficult times. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word, that it is perfect, restoring the soul. That even in all the mistakes that I make as a speaker or as a teacher or all the mistakes that us as a church makes, that your word never returns void. That it can be sufficient for every person in their living after this day and continually in this day. We thank you so much for the word of God, for sufficiency, that we can continue to become convicted of every jot and tittle of your breath on pages of paper so that we may be adequately equipped for the times you've put us in. Amen.